Greetings, listeners. Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. Week 4, Jules Verne. Master of the World. And uh, this, I, I, I tried to find episodes that uh, Ken Height recommended last week, but I couldn't find any of those, so I went with the sequel to uh, Robor the Conqueror. So that is Master of the World. And apparently you can listen to this without hearing the first one, and it, you know, you, it's, it's uh, unnecessary, so don't worry about it. And yeah. And as always, this, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com and founditemclothing.com. Check out the new Highland Cow Slipper. If you like woolly things, if you like bully things, check out the Highland Cow Slipper. Also, all kinds of slippers they have available of all kinds of different animals and activities that people enjoy or food items, things like that. You'll, you'll find it amazing. BunnySlippers.com. Look for it in the show notes. And let's not forget all of the wonderful people who make this show possible. Besides BunnySlippers.com, you! Yes, you! You can go to PayPal.me slash P-G-T-T-C-M and donate $5 to help keep the show going. You can also go to the shop and get one of our t-shirts. You can, I don't know, um, tell your friends about it. Subscribe to it. Um, rate it five stars on uh, whatever pod streaming service you listen to, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you go. I use Podbean, but that's me. Thank you so much, and let's get going with this. But uh, one thing I wanted to try before we go any further. Alexa, diminish lights 50%. Alexa, increase volume by 50%. Alexa, how tall is Jeff Goldblum? Alexa, delete all past episodes of Babylon 5. Okay, on with the show. Alexa, Self-destruct in three seconds. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 10 Outside the Law Such was the letter addressed to the government of the United States. As to the person who had placed it in the mailbox of the police, no one had seen him. The sidewalk in front of our offices had probably not been once vacant during the entire night. From sunset to sunrise there had always been people, busy, anxious, or curious, passing before our door. It is true, however, that even then the bearer of the letter might easily have slipped by unseen and dropped the letter in the box. The night had been so dark you could scarcely see from one side of the street to the other. I have said that this letter appeared in facsimile in all the newspapers to which the government communicated it. Perhaps one would naturally imagine that the first comment of the public would be, This is the work of some practical joker. It was in that way that I had accepted my letter from the Great Erie five weeks before. But this was not the general attitude toward the present letter neither in Washington nor in the rest of America. 
to the few who would have maintained that the document should not be taken seriously an immense majority would have responded this letter has not the style nor the spirit of a jester only one man could have written it and that is the inventor of this unapproachable machine to most people this conclusion seemed indisputable owing to a curious state of mind easily explainable for all the strange facts of which the key had hitherto been lacking this letter furnished an explanation the theory now almost universally accepted was as follows the inventor had hidden himself for a time only in order to reappear more startlingly in some new light instead of having perished in an accident he had concealed himself in some retreat where the police were unable to discover him then to assert positively his attitude toward all governments he had written this letter but instead of dropping it in the post in any one locality which might have resulted in its being traced to him he had come to washington and deposited it himself in the very spot suggested by the government's official notice the bureau of police well if this remarkable personage had reckoned that this new proof of his existence would make some noise in two worlds he certainly figured rightly that day the millions of good folk who read and reread their daily paper could to employ a well-known phrase scarcely believe their eyes as for myself i studied carefully every phrase of the defiant document the handwriting was black and heavy an expert at chirography would doubtless have distinguished in the lines traces of a violent temperament of a character stern and unsocial suddenly a cry escaped me a cry that fortunately my housekeeper did not hear why had i not noticed sooner the resemblance of the handwriting to that of the letter i had received from morganton moreover a yet more significant coincidence the initials with which my letter had been signed did they not stand for the words master of the world and whence came the second letter on board the terror doubtless this name was that of the triple machine commanded by the mysterious captain the initials in my letter were his own signature and it was he who had threatened me if i dared to renew my attempt on the great erie i rose and took from my desk the letter of june thirteenth i compared it with the facsimile in the newspapers there was no doubt about it they were both in the same peculiar handwriting my mind worked eagerly I sought to trace the probable deductions from this striking fact known only to myself. The man who had threatened me was the commander of this terror and the Great Erie. What connection was there between the phenomena of the Blue Ridge Mountains amid the no less phenomenal performances of the fantastic machine? I knew what my first step should be, and with the letter in my pocket I hastened to police headquarters inquiring if mr ward was within and receiving an affirmative reply i hastened toward his door and rapped upon it with unusual and perhaps unnecessary vigor upon his call to enter i stepped eagerly into the room the chief had spread before him the letter published in the papers not a facsimile but the original itself which had been deposited in the letter-box of the department you come as if you had important news struck 
Judge for yourself, Mr. Ward. And I drew from my pocket the letter with the initials. Mr. Ward took it, glanced at his face, and asked, What is this? A letter signed only with initials, as you can see. And where was it posted? In Morganton, in North Carolina. When did you receive it? A month ago, the 13th of June. What did you think of it then? That it had been written as a joke. And now struck? I think what you will think, Mr. Ward, after you have studied it. My chief turned to the letter again and read it carefully. It is signed with three initials, said he. Yes, Mr. Ward, and those initials belong to the words Master of the World in this facsimile. Of which this is the original, responded Mr. Ward, taking it up. It is quite evident, I urged, that the two letters are by the same hand. It seems so. You see what threats are made against me to protect the Great Erie? Yes, the threat of death. But struck, you have had this letter for a month. Why have you not shown it to me before? Because I attach no importance to it. Today, after the letter from the Terror, it must be taken seriously. I agree with you. It appears to be most important. I even hope it may prove the means of tracking this strange personage. That is what I also hope, Mr. Ward. Only what connection can possibly exist between the Terror and the Great Eyrie? That I do not know. I cannot even imagine. There can be but one explanation, continued Mr. Ward, though it is almost inadmissible, even impossible. And that is? That the Great Eyrie was the spot selected by the inventor, where he gathered his material. That is impossible, cried I. In what way would he get his material in there? And how get his machine out? After what I have seen, Mr. Ward, your suggestion is impossible. Unless struck? Unless what? I demanded. Unless the machine of this master of the world has also wings which permit it to take refuge in the Great Eyrie. At the suggestion that the terror, which had searched the deeps of the sea, might be capable also of rivaling the vultures and the eagles, I could not restrain an expressive shrug of incredulity. Neither did Mr. Ward himself dwell upon the extravagant hypothesis. He took the two letters and compared them afresh. He examined them under a microscope, especially the signatures, and established their perfect identity. Not only the same hand, but the same pen had written them. After some moments of further reflection, Mr. Ward said, I will keep your letter struck. Decidedly, I think, that you are fated to play an important part in this strange affair, or rather in these two affairs. What thread attaches them I cannot yet see, but I am sure the thread exists. You have been connected with the first, and it will not be surprising if you have a large part in the second. I hope so, Mr. Ward. You know how inquisitive I am. I do, Struck. That is understood. Now, I can only repeat my former order. Hold yourself in readiness to leave Washington at a moment's warning. All that day, 
the public excitement caused by the defiant letter mounted steadily higher. It was felt both at the White House and at the Capitol that public opinion absolutely demanded some action. Of course, it was difficult to do anything. Where could one find this master of the world, and even if he were discovered, how could he be captured? He had at his disposal not only the powers he had displayed, but apparently still greater resources, as yet unknown. How had he been able to reach Lake Kurdal over the rocks, and how had he escaped from it? Then, if he had indeed appeared on Lake Superior, how had he covered all the intervening territory, unseen? What a bewildering affair it was altogether! This, of course, made it all the more important to get to the bottom of it. Since the millions of dollars had been refused, force must be employed. The inventor and his invention were not to be bought. And in what haughty and menacing terms he had couched his refusal! So be it. He must be treated as an enemy of society, against whom all means became justified, that he might be deprived of his power to injure others. The idea that he had perished was now entirely discarded. He was alive very much alive, and his existence constituted a perpetual public danger. Influenced by these ideas, the government issued the following proclamation. Since the commander of the terror has refused to make public his invention at any price whatever, since the use which he makes of his machine constitutes a public menace, against which it is impossible to guard, the said commander of the terror is hereby placed beyond the protection of the law. Any measures taken in the effort to capture or destroy either him or his machine will be approved and rewarded. It was a declaration of war, war to the death against this master of the world who thought to threaten and defy an entire nation, the American nation. Before the day was over, various rewards of large amounts were promised to anyone who revealed the hiding-place of this dangerous inventor, to anyone who could identify him, and to anyone who could rid the country of him. Such was the situation during the last fortnight of July. All was left to the hazard of fortune. The moment the outlaw reappeared he would be seen and signalled, and when the chance came he would be arrested. This could not be accomplished when he was in his automobile on land or in his boat on the water. No, he must be seized suddenly before he had any opportunity to escape by means of that speed which no other machine could equal. I was therefore all alert, awaiting an order from Mr. Ward to start out with my men. But the order did not arrive for the very good reason that the man whom it concerned remained undiscovered. The end of July approached. The newspapers continued the excitement. They published repeated rumors. New clues were constantly being announced. But all this was mere idle talk. Telegrams reached the police bureau from every part of America, each contradicting and nullifying the others. The enormous rewards offered could not help but lead to accusations, errors, and blunders, made, many of them, in good faith. One time it would be a cloud of dust which must have contained the automobile. At another time, almost any wave on any of America's thousand lakes represented the submarine. In truth, in the excited state of the public imagination, 
apparitions assailed us from every side. At last, on the 29th of July, I received a telephone message to come to Mr. Ward on the instant. Twenty minutes later I was in his cabinet. "'You leave in an hour, Strock,' said he. "'Wherefore?' "'For Toledo.' "'It has been seen?' "'Yes. At Toledo you will get your final orders.' In an hour my men and I will be on the way. Good. And struck, I now give you a formal order. What is it, Mr. Ward? To succeed. This time to succeed. End of chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD by Jules Verne CHAPTER Eleven: THE CAMPAIGN So the undiscoverable commander had reappeared upon the territory of the United States. He had never shown himself in Europe, either on the roads or in the seas. He had not crossed the Atlantic, which apparently he could have traversed in three days. Did he then intend to make only America the scene of his exploits? Ought we to conclude from this that he was an American? Let me insist upon this point. It seemed clear that the submarine might easily have crossed the vast sea which separates the new and the old world. Not only would its amazing speed have made its voyage short, in comparison to that of the swiftest steamship, but also it would have escaped all the storms that make the voyage dangerous. Tempest did not exist for it. It had but to abandon the surface of the waves, and it could find absolute calm a few score feet beneath. But the inventor had not crossed the Atlantic, and if he were to be captured now, it would probably be in Ohio, since Toledo is a city of that state. This time the fact of the machine's appearance had been kept secret, between the police and the agent who had warned them, and whom I was hurrying to meet. No journal and many would have paid high for the chance, was printing this news. We had decided that nothing should be revealed until our effort was at an end. No indiscretion would be committed by either my comrades or myself. The man to whom I was sent with an order from Mr. Ward was named Arthur Wells. He awaited us at Toledo. The city of Toledo stands at the western end of Lake Erie. Our train sped during the night across West Virginia and Ohio. There was no delay, and before noon the next day the locomotive stopped in the Toledo depot. John Hart, Nab Walker, and I stepped out with traveling bags in our hands and revolvers in our pockets. Perhaps we should need weapons for an attack, or even to defend ourselves. Scarcely had I stepped from the train when I picked out the man who awaited us. He was scanning the arriving passengers impatiently, evidently as eager and full of haste as I. I approached him. "'Mr. Wells,' said I. "'Mr. Strock?' asked he. "'Yes. I am at your command,' said Mr. Wells. "'Are we to stop any time in Toledo?' I asked. "'No. With your permission, Mr. Strock.' A carriage with two good horses is waiting outside the station, and we must leave at once to reach our destination as soon as possible. We will go at once, 
I answered, signing to my two men to follow us. Is it far? Twenty miles. And the place is called Black Rock Creek. Having left our bags at a hotel, we started on our drive. Much to my surprise I found there were provisions sufficient for several days packed beneath the seat of the carriage. Mr. Wells told me that the region around Black Rock Creek was among the wildest in the state. There was nothing there to attract either farmers or fishermen. We would not find an inn for our meals, nor a room in which to sleep. Fortunately, during the July heat there would be no hardship, even if we had to lie one or two nights under the stars. More probably, however, if we were successful, the matter would not occupy us many hours. Either the commander of the terror would be surprised before he had a chance to escape, or he would take to flight and we must give up all hope of arresting him. I found Arthur Wells to be a man of about forty, large and powerful. I knew him by reputation to be one of the best of our local police agents. Cool in danger and enterprising always, he had proven his daring on more than one occasion at the peril of his life. He had been in Toledo on a wholly different mission, when chance had thrown him on the track of the terror. We drove rapidly along the shore of Lake Erie, toward the southwest. This inland sea of water is on the northern boundary of the United States, lying between Canada on one side and the states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York on the other. If I stop to mention the geographical position of this lake, its depth, its extent, and the waters nearest around, it is because the knowledge is necessary for the understanding of the events which were about to happen. The surface of Lake Erie covers about ten thousand square miles. It is nearly six hundred feet above sea level. It is joined on the northwest, by means of the Detroit River, with the still greater lakes to the westward, and receives their waters. It is also rivers of its own, though of less importance, such as the Rocky, the Cuyahoga, and the Black. The lake empties at its northeastern end into Lake Ontario by means of Niagara River and its celebrated falls. The greatest known depth of Lake Erie is over 130 feet. Hence it will be seen that the mass of its waters is considerable. In short, this is a region of most magnificent lakes. The land, though not situated far northward, is exposed to the full sweep of the Arctic cold. The region to the northward is low, and the winds of winter rush down with extreme violence. Hence Lake Erie is sometimes frozen over from shore to shore. The principal cities on the borders of this great lake are Buffalo at the east, which belongs to New York State and Toledo in Ohio at the west, with Cleveland and Sandusky, both Ohio cities, at the south. Smaller towns and villages are numerous along the shore. The traffic is naturally large, its annual value being estimated at considerably over two million dollars. Our carriage followed a rough and little-used road along the borders of the lake, and as we toiled along Arthur Wells told me what he had learned. Less than two days before, on the afternoon of July 27th, Wells had been riding on horseback toward the town of Hurley. Five miles outside the town, he was riding through a little wood, when he saw, far up across the lake, 
a submarine which rose suddenly above the waves. He stopped, tied his horse, and stole on foot to the edge of the lake. There from behind a tree he had seen with his own eyes, seen this submarine advance toward him, and stop at the mouth of Black Rock Creek. Was it the famous machine for which the whole world was seeking, which thus came directly to his feet? When the submarine was close to the rocks, two men climbed out upon its deck and stepped ashore. Was one of them this master of the world, who had not been seen since he was reported from Lake Superior? Was this the mysterious terror which had thus risen from the depths of Lake Erie? "'I was alone,' said Wells, "'alone on the edge of the creek. If you and your assistants, Mr. Strock, had been there, we four against two, we would have been able to reach these men and seize them before they could have regained their boat and fled. Probably, I answered, but were there no others on the boat with them? Still, if we had seized the two, we could have at least have learned who they were. And above all, added Wells, if one of them turned out to be the captain of the terror. I have only one fear, Wells. This submarine, whether it is the one we seek, or another, may have left the creek since your departure. We shall know that in a few hours now. Pray heaven they are still there. Then, when night comes? But, I asked, did you remain watching in the wood until night? No. I left after an hour's watching, and rode straight for the telegraph station at Toledo. I reached there late at night, and sent immediate word to Washington. That was night before last. Did you return yesterday to Black Rock Creek? Yes. The submarine was still there? In the same spot. And the two men? The same two men. I judged that some accident had happened, and they came to this lonely spot to repair it. Probably so, said I some damage which made it impossible for them to regain their usual hiding-place, if only they are still here. I have reason to believe they will be, for quite a lot of stuff was taken out of the boat and laid about upon the shore, and as well as I could discern from a distance they seemed to be working on board. Only the two men? Only the two. But, protested I, can two be sufficient to handle an apparatus of such speed, and of such intricacy, as to be at once automobile, boat, and submarine? I think not, Mr. Strzok, but I only saw the same two. Several times they came to the edge of the little wood where I was hidden, and gathered sticks for a fire which they made upon the beach. The region is so uninhabited, and the creek so hidden from the lake that they ran little danger of discovery. They seem to know this. You would recognize them both again? Perfectly. One was of middle size, vigorous and quick of movement, heavily bearded. The other was smaller, but stocky and strong. Yesterday, as before, I left the wood about five o'clock and hurried back to Toledo. There I found a telegram from Mr. Ward, notifying me of your coming, and I awaited you at the station. Summed up, then the news amounted to this. For forty hours past, a submarine, presumably the one we sought, had been hidden in Black Rock Creek, engaged in repairs. 
probably these were absolutely necessary, and we should find the boat still there. As to how the terror came to be in Lake Erie, Arthur Wells and I discussed that, and agreed that it was a very probable place for her. The last time she had been seen was on Lake Superior. From there to Lake Erie the machine could have come by the roads of Michigan, but since no one had remarked its passage, and as both the police and the people were specially aroused and active in that portion of the country, it seemed more probable that the terror had come by water. There was a clear route through the chain of the Great Lakes and their rivers, by which in her character of a submarine she could easily proceed undiscovered. And now, if the terror had already left the creek, or if she escaped when we attempted to seize her, in what direction would she turn? In any case there was little chance of following her. There were two torpedo-destroyers at the port of Buffalo, at the other extremity of Lake Erie. By treaty between the United States and Canada there are no vessels of war whatever on the Great Lakes. These might, however, have been little launches belonging to the Customs Service. Before I left Washington Mr. Ward had informed me of their presence, and a telegram to their commanders would, if there were need, start them in pursuit of the terror. But despite their splendid speed, how could they vie with her? And if she plunged beneath the waters, they would be helpless. Moreover, Arthur Wells averred that in case of a battle, the advantage would not be with the destroyers, despite their large crews and many guns. Hence, if we did not succeed this night, the campaign would end in failure. Arthur Wells knew Black Rock Creek thoroughly, having hunted there more than once. It was bordered in most places with sharp rocks, against which the waters of the lake beat heavily. Its channel was some thirty feet deep, so that the terror could take shelter either upon the surface or under water. In two or three places the steep banks gave way to sand beaches, which led to little gorges reaching up toward the woods, two or three hundred feet. It was seven in the evening when our carriage reached these woods. There was still daylight enough for us to see easily, even in the shade of the trees. To have crossed openly to the edge of the creek would have exposed us to the view of the men of the terror, if she were still there, and thus giving her warning to escape. "'Had we better stop here?' I asked Wells, as our rig drew up to the edge of the woods. "'No, Mr. Strock,' said he. "'We had better leave the carriage deeper in the woods, where there will be no chance whatever of our being seen.' "'Can the carriage drive under these trees?' "'It can,' declared Wells. "'I have already explored these woods thoroughly. Five or six hundred feet from here there is a little clearing, where we will be completely hidden, and where our horses may find pasture. Then, as soon as it is dark, we will go down to the beach, at the edge of the rocks which shut in the mouth of the creek. Thus, if the terror is still there, we shall stand between her and escape.' eager as we all were for action. It was evidently best to do as Wells suggested, and wait for night. The intervening time could well be occupied as he said. Leading the horses by the bridle, while they dragged the empty carriage, we proceeded through the heavy woods. The tall pines, the stalwart oaks, the cypress scattered here and there, made the evening darker overhead. Beneath our feet spread a carpet of scattered herbs pine-needles, and dead leaves. 
Such was the thickness of the upper foliage that the last rays of the setting sun could no longer penetrate here. We had to feel our way, and it was not without some knocks that the carriage reached the clearing ten minutes later. This clearing, surrounded by great trees, formed a sort of oval, covered with rich grass. Here it was still daylight, and the darkness would scarcely deepen for over an hour. There was thus time to arrange an encampment and to rest a while after our hard trip over the rough and rocky roads. Of course we were intensely eager to approach the creek and see if the terror were still there, but prudence restrained us. A little patience, and the night would enable us to reach a commanding position unsuspected. Wells urged this strongly, and despite my eagerness I felt that he was right. The horses were unharnessed, and left to browse under the care of the coachman who had driven us. The provisions were unpacked, and John Hart and Nab Walker spread out a meal on the grass at the foot of a superb cypress, which recalled to me the forest odours of Morganton and Pleasant Garden. We were hungry and thirsty, and food and drink were not lacking. Then our pipes were lighted to calm the anxious moments of waiting that remained. Silence reigned within the wood. The last song of the birds had ceased. With the coming of night the breeze fell, little by little, and the leaves scarcely quivered even at the tops of the highest branches. The sky darkened rapidly after sundown, and twilight deepened into obscurity. I looked at my watch. It was half-past eight. It is time, Wells. When you will, Mr. Strock. Then let us start. We cautioned the coachman not to let the horses stray beyond the clearing. Then we started. Wells went in advance. I followed him, and John Hart and Nab Walker came behind. In the darkness we three would have been helpless without the guidance of Wells. Soon we reached the farther border of the woods, and before us stretched the banks of Black Rock Creek. All was silent. All seemed deserted. We could advance without risk. If the terror was there, she had cast anchor behind the rocks. But was she there? That was the momentous question. As we approached the denouement of this exciting affair, my heart was in my throat. Wells motioned to us to advance. The sand of the shore crunched beneath our steps. The two hundred feet between us and the mouth of the creek were crossed softly, and a few minutes sufficed to bring us to the rocks at the edge of the lake. There was nothing. Nothing. The spot where Wells had left the terror twenty-four hours before was empty. The master of the world was no longer at Black Rock Creek. End of chapter Recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 12 Black Rock Creek Human nature is prone to illusions. Of course there had been all along a probability that the terror had deserted the locality, even admitting that it was she Wells had seen the previous day. If some damage to her triple system of locomotion had prevented her from regaining either by land or by water her usual hiding-place, and obliged her to seek refuge in Black Rock Creek, what ought we to conclude now upon finding her here no longer? 
obviously, that having finished her repairs, she had continued on her way and was already far beyond the waters of Lake Erie. But probable as this result had been from the first, we had more and more ignored it as our trip proceeded. We had come to accept as a fact that we should meet the terror, that we should find her anchored at the base of the rocks where Wells had seen her. And now, what disappointment! I might even say, what despair! All our efforts gone for nothing! Even if the terror was still upon the lake, to find her, reach her, and capture her was beyond our power, and it might as well be fully recognized beyond all human power. We stood there, Wells and I, completely crushed, while John Hart and Nab Walker, no less chagrined, went tramping along the banks of the creek, seeking any trace that had been left behind. Posted there, at the mouth of the creek, Wells and I exchanged scarcely a word. What need was there of words to enable us to understand each other? After our eagerness and our despair, we were now exhausted. Defeated in our well-planned attempt, we felt as unwilling to abandon our campaign as we were unable to continue it. Nearly an hour slipped by. We could not resolve to leave the place. Our eyes still sought to pierce the night. Sometimes a glimmer, due to the sparkle of the waters, trembled on the surface of the lake. Then it vanished, and with it the foolish hope that it had roused. Sometimes again we thought we saw a shadow outlined against the dark, the silhouette of an approaching boat. Yet again some eddies would swirl up at our feet as if the creek had been stirred within its depths. These vain imaginings were dissipated one after the other. They were but the illusions raised by our strained fancies. At length our companions rejoined us. My first question was, Nothing new? Nothing, said John Hart. You have explored both banks of the creek? Yes, responded Nab Walker, as far as the shallow water above, and we have not seen even a vestige of the things which Mr. Wells saw laid on the shore. Let us wait a while, said I, unable to resolve upon a return to the woods. At that moment our attention was caught by a sudden agitation of the waters, which swelled upward at the foot of the rocks. "'It is like the swell from a vessel,' said Wells. "'Yes,' said I, instinctively lowering my voice. "'What has caused it? The wind has completely died out. Does it come from something on the surface of the lake?' "'Or from something underneath,' said Wells, bending forward, the better to determine." The commotion certainly seemed as if caused by some boat, whether from beneath the water, or approaching the creek from outside upon the lake. Silent, motionless, we strained eyes and ears to pierce the profound obscurity. The faint noise of the waves of the lake lapping on the shore beyond the creek came to us distinctly through the night. John Hart and Nab Walker drew a little aside upon a higher ridge of rocks. As for me, I leaned close to the water to watch the agitation. It did not lessen. On the contrary, it became momentarily more evident, and I began to distinguish a sort of regular throbbing, like that produced by a screw in motion. "'There is no doubt,' declared Wells, leaning close to me. "'There is a boat coming toward us.' "'There certainly is,' 
responded I, unless they have whales or sharks in Lake Erie. No, it is a boat, repeated Wells. Is she headed toward the mouth of the creek, or is she going further up it? This is just where you saw the boat twice before? Yes, just here. Then if this is the same one, and it can be no other, she will probably return to the same spot. There, whispered Wells, extending his hand toward the entrance of the creek. Our companions rejoined us, and all four, crouching low upon the bank, peered in the direction he pointed. We vaguely distinguished a black mass moving through the darkness. It advanced very slowly, and was still outside the creek, upon the lake, perhaps a cable's length to the northeast. We could scarcely hear even now the faint throbbing of its engines. Perhaps they had stopped, and the boat was only gliding forward under their previous impulse. It seemed then that this was indeed the submarine which Wells had watched, and it was returning to pass this night, like the last, within the shelter of the creek. Why had it left the anchorage, if only to return? Had it suffered some new disaster, which again impaired its power? Or had it been before compelled to leave, with its repairs still unfinished? What cause constrained it to return here? Was there some imperious reason why it could no longer be turned into an automobile and go darting away across the roads of Ohio? To all these questions which came crowding upon me I could give no answer. Furthermore, both Wells and I kept reasoning under the assumption that this was really the terror commanded by the Master of the World, who had dated from it his letter of defiance to the government. Yet this premise was still unproven, no matter how confident we might feel of it. Whatever boat this was, that stole so softly through the night, it continued to approach us. Assuredly its captain must know perfectly the channels and shores of Black Rock Creek, since he ventured here in such darkness. Not a light showed upon the deck. Not a single ray from within the cabin glimmered through any crevice. A moment later we heard some machinery moving very softly. The swell of the eddies grew stronger, and in a few moments the boat touched the key. This word, key, only used in that region, exactly describes the spot. The rocks at our feet formed a level, five or six feet above the water, and descending to it perpendicularly, exactly like a landing wharf. "'We must not stop here,' whispered Wells, seizing me by the arm. "'No,' I answered. "'They might see us. We must lie crouched upon the beach. Or we might hide in some crevice of the rocks.' "'We will follow you.' There was not a moment to lose. The dark mass was now close at hand, and on its deck, but slightly raised above the surface of the water, we could trace the silhouettes of two men. Were there, then, really only two on board? We stole softly back to where the ravines rose toward the woods above. Several niches in the rocks were at hand. Wells and I crouched down in one, my two assistants in another. If the men on the terror landed, they could not see us, but we could see them, and would be able to act as opportunity offered. There were some slight noises from the boat, a few words exchanged in our own language. It was evident that the vessel was preparing to anchor. Then, almost instantly, a rope was thrown out, exactly on the point of the quay where we had stood. 
Leaning forward, Wells could discern that the rope was seized by one of the mariners, who had leaped ashore. Then we heard a grappling iron scrape along the ground. Some moments later, steps crunched upon the sand. Two men came up the ravine, and went onward toward the edge of the woods, guiding their steps by a ship-lantern. Where were they going? Was Black Rock Creek a regular hiding-place of the terror? Had her commander a depot here for stores or provisions? Did they come here to restock their craft, when the whim of their wild voyaging brought them to this part of the continent? Did they know this deserted, uninhabited spot so well, that they had no fear of ever being discovered here? "'What shall we do?' whispered Wells. "'Wait till they return, and then—' My words were cut short by a surprise. The men were not thirty feet from us when, one of them chancing to turn suddenly, the light of their lantern fell full upon his face. He was one of the two men who had watched before my house in Long Street. I could not be mistaken. I recognized him as positively as my old servant had done. It was he. It was assuredly one of the spies of whom I had never been able to find any further traces. There was no longer any doubt. My warning letter had come from them. It was therefore from the master of the world. It had been written from the terror, and this was the terror. Once more I asked myself what could be the connection between this machine and the Great Eyrie. In whispered words, I told Wells of my discovery. His only comment was, It is all incomprehensible. Meanwhile the two men had continued on their way to the woods, and were gathering sticks beneath the trees. "'What if they discover our encampment?' murmured Wells. "'No danger, if they do not go beyond the nearest trees.' "'But if they do discover it, they will hurry back to their boat, and we shall be able to cut off their retreat.' Toward the creek, where their craft lay, there was no further sound. I left my hiding-place. I descended the ravine to the quay. I stood on the very spot where the grappling-iron was fast among the rocks. The terror lay there, quiet, at the end of its cable. Not a light was on board, not a person visible, either on the deck or on the bank. Was not this my opportunity? Should I leap on board and there await the return of the two men? Mr. Strock! It was Wells who called to me softly from close at hand. I drew back in all haste, and crouched down beside him. Was it too late to take possession of the boat, or would the attempt perhaps result in disaster from the presence of others watching on board? At any rate the two men with a lantern were close at hand returning down the ravine. Plainly they suspected nothing. Each carrying a bundle of wood they came forward and stopped upon the quay. Then one of them raised his voice, though not loudly, "'Hello, Captain!' "'All right,' answered a voice from the boat. Wells murmured in my ear, "'There are three. "'Perhaps four, I answered. "'Perhaps five or six. The situation grew more complicated. Against a crew so numerous, what ought we to do? The least imprudence might cost us dear. Now that the two men had returned, would they re-embark with their faggots? Then would the boat leave the creek, or would it remain anchored until day? If it withdrew, would it not be lost to us? 
it could leave the waters of Lake Erie and cross any of the neighboring states by land, or it could retrace its road by the Detroit River which would lead it to Lake Huron and the Great Lakes above. Would such an opportunity as this, in the narrow waters of Black Rock Creek, ever occur again? At least, said I to Wells, we are four. They do not expect attack. They will be surprised. The result is in the hands of Providence. I was about to call our two men, when Wells again seized my arm. Listen, said he. One of the men hailed the boat, and it drew close up to the rocks. We heard the captain say to the two men ashore, Everything is all right up there? Everything, Captain. There are still two bundles of wood left there? Two. Then one more trip will bring them all on board the Terror. The Terror? It was she! Yes, just one more trip, answered one of the men. Good. Then we will start off again at daybreak. Were there then but three of them on board? The captain, this master of the world, and these two men? Evidently they planned to take aboard the last of their wood. Then they would withdraw within their machine and go to sleep. Would not that be the time to surprise them, before they could defend themselves? Rather than to attempt to reach and capture the ship in face of this resolute captain who was guarding it, Wells and I agreed that it was better to let his men return unassailed, and wait till they were all asleep. It was now half an hour after ten. Steps were once more heard upon the shore. The man with a lantern and his companion again remounted the ravine toward the woods. When they were safely beyond hearing, Wells went to warn our men, while I stole forward again to the very edge of the water. The terror lay at the end of a short cable. As well as I could judge, she was long and slim, shaped like a spindle, without chimney, without masts, without rigging, such a shape as had been described when she was seen on the coast of New England. I returned to my place, with my men in the shelter of the ravine, and we looked to our revolvers, which might well prove of service. Five minutes had passed since the men reached the woods, and we expected their return at any moment. After that we must wait at least an hour before we made our attack, so that both the captain and his comrades might be deep in sleep. It was important that they should not have a moment either to send their craft darting out upon the waters of Lake Erie, or to plunge it beneath the waves where we would have been entrapped with it. In all my career I have never felt such impatience. It seemed to me that the two men must have been detained in the woods. Something had barred their return. Suddenly a loud noise was heard, the tumult of runaway horses galloping furiously along the shore. They were our own, which, frightened, and perhaps neglected by the driver, had broken away from the clearing and now came rushing along the bank. At the same moment the two men reappeared, and this time they were running with all speed. Doubtless they had discovered our encampment, and had at once suspected that there were police hidden in the woods. They realized that they were watched, they were followed, they would be seized. So they dashed recklessly down the ravine, and after loosening the cable, they would doubtless endeavor to leap aboard. The terror would disappear with the speed of a meteor, and our attempt would be wholly defeated. Forward! I cried, and we scrambled down the sides of the ravine to cut off the retreat of the two men.
They saw us, and on the instant, throwing down their bundles, fired at us with revolvers, hitting John Hart in the leg. We fired in our turn, but less successfully. The men neither fell nor faltered in their course. Reaching the edge of the creek, without stopping to unloose the cable, they plunged overboard, and in a moment were clinging to the deck of the terror. Their captain, springing forward, revolver in hand, fired. The ball grazed Wells. Nab Walker and I, seizing the cable, pulled the black mass of the boat toward shore. Could they cut the rope in time to escape us? Suddenly the grappling iron was torn violently from the rocks. One of its hooks caught in my belt, while Walker was knocked down by the flying cable. I was entangled by the iron and the rope and dragged forward. The terror, driven by all the power of her engines, made a single bound and darted out across Black Rock Creek. End of chapter. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 13 On Board the Terror. When I came to my senses, it was daylight. A half-light pierced the thick glass porthole of the narrow cabin wherein someone had placed me. How many hours ago I could not say. Yet it seemed to me by the slanting rays that the sun could not be very far above the horizon. I was resting in a narrow bunk with coverings over me. My clothes, hanging in a corner, had been dried. My belt, torn in half by the hook of the iron, lay on the floor. I felt no wound nor injury only a little weakness. If I had lost consciousness, I was sure it had not been from a blow. My head must have been drawn beneath the water when I was tangled in the cable. I should have been suffocated if someone had not dragged me from the lake. Now, was I on board the Terror? And was I alone with the captain and his two men? This seemed probable, almost certain. The whole scene of our encounter rose before my eyes, heart lying wounded upon the bank, Wells firing shot after shot, Walker hurled down at the instant when the grappling-hook caught my belt, and my companions, on their side, must not they think that I had perished in the waters of Lake Erie? Where was the terror now, and how was it navigating? Was it moving as an automobile? Speeding across the roads of some neighboring state? If so, and if I had been unconscious for many hours, the machine with its tremendous powers must be already far away. Or, on the other hand, were we, as a submarine, following some course beneath the lake? No, the terror was moving upon some broad liquid surface. The sunlight, penetrating my cabin, showed that the window was not submerged. On the other hand, I felt none of the jolting that the automobile must have suffered even on the smoothest highway. Hence the terror was not travelling upon land. As to deciding whether she was still traversing Lake Erie, that was another matter. Had not the captain reascended the Detroit River and entered Lake Huron, or even Lake Superior, beyond? It was difficult to say. At any rate I decided to go up on deck. From there I might be able to judge. Dragging myself somewhat heavily from the bunk, I reached for my clothes and dressed, though without much energy. Was I not probably locked within this cabin? 
The only exit seemed by a ladder and hatchway above my head. The hatch rose readily to my hand, and I ascended halfway on deck. My first care was to look forward, backward, and on both sides of the speeding terror. Everywhere a vast expanse of waves, not a shore in sight, nothing but the horizon formed by sea and sky. Whether it was a lake or the ocean I could easily settle. As we shot forward at such speed the water cut by the bow rose furiously upward on either side, and the spray lashed savagely against me. I tasted it. It was fresh water, and very probably that of Lake Erie. The sun was but midway toward the zenith, so it could scarcely be more than seven or eight hours since the moment when the terror had darted from Black Rock Creek. This must therefore be the following morning, that of the thirty-first of July. Considering that Lake Erie is two hundred and twenty miles long, and over fifty wide, there was no reason to be surprised that I could see no land, neither that of the United States to the southeast, nor of Canada to the northwest. At this moment there were two men on the deck, one being at the bow on the lookout, the other in the stern keeping the course to the northeast, as I judged by the position of the sun. The one at the bow was the one whom I had recognized as he ascended the ravine at Black Rock. The second was his companion who had carried the lantern. I looked in vain for the one whom they had called Captain. He was not in sight. It will be readily appreciated how eager was my desire to stand in the presence of the creator of this prodigious machine, of this fantastic personage who occupied and preoccupied the attention of all the world the daring inventor who did not fear to engage in battle against the entire human race, and who proclaimed himself master of the world. I approached the man on the lookout, and after a minute of silence I asked him, Where is the captain? He looked at me through half-closed eyes. He seemed not to understand me. Yet I knew, having heard him the night before, that he spoke English. Moreover, I noticed that he did not appear surprised to see me out of my cabin. Turning his back upon me, he continued to search the horizon. I stepped then toward the stern, determined to ask the same question about the captain. But when I approached the steersman, he waved me away with his hand, and I obtained no other response. It only remained for me to study this craft, from which we had been repelled with revolver-shots, when we had seized upon its anchor-rope. I therefore set leisurely to work to examine the construction of this machine, which was carrying me whither. The deck and the upper works were all made of some metal which I did not recognize. In the centre of the deck a scuttle half-raised covered the room where the engines were working regularly and almost silently. As I had seen before, neither masts nor rigging not even a flagstaff at the stern. Toward the bow there arose the top of a periscope, by which the terror could be guided when beneath the water. On the sides were folded back two sort of outshoots, resembling the gangways on certain Dutch boats. Of these I could not understand the use. In the bow there rose a third hatchway, which presumably covered the quarters occupied by the two men when the terror was at rest. At the stern a similar hatch gave access probably to the cabin of the captain, who remained unseen. 
When these different hatches were shut down, they had a sort of rubber covering which closed them hermetically tight, so that the water could not reach the interior when the boat plunged beneath the ocean. As to the motor, which imparted such prodigious speed to the machine, I could see nothing of it, nor of the propeller. However, the fast-speeding boat left behind it only a long, smooth wake. The extreme fineness of the lines of the craft caused it to make scarcely any waves, and enabled it to ride lightly over the crest of the billows even in a rough sea. As was already known, the power by which the machine was driven was neither steam nor gasoline, nor any of those similar liquids so well known by their odor, which are usually employed for automobiles and submarines. No doubt the power here used was electricity, generated on board at some high power. Naturally I asked myself whence comes this electricity, from piles or from accumulators? But how were these piles or accumulators charged? Unless indeed the electricity was drawn directly from the surrounding air or from the water, by processes hitherto unknown. And I asked myself with intense eagerness if in the present situation I might be able to discover these secrets. Then I thought of my companions, left behind on the shore of Black Rock Creek. One of them, I knew, was wounded. Perhaps the others were also. Having seen me dragged overboard by the hawser, could they possibly suppose that I had been rescued by the terror? Surely not. Doubtless the news of my death had already been telegraphed to Mr. Ward from Toledo. And now who would dare to undertake a new campaign against this master of the world? These thoughts occupied my mind as I awaited the captain's appearance on the deck. He did not appear. I soon began to feel very hungry, for I must have fasted now nearly twenty-four hours. I had eaten nothing since our hasty meal in the woods, even if that had been the night before, and judging by the pangs which now assailed my stomach, I began to wonder if I had not been snatched on board the terror two days before, or even more. Happily the question, if they meant to feed me, and how they meant to feed me, was solved at once. The man at the bow left his post, descended, and reappeared. Then, without saying a word, he placed some food before me, and returned to his place. Some potted meat, dried fish, sea-biscuit, and a pot of ale so strong that I had to mix it with water, such was the meal to which I did full justice. My fellow-travellers had doubtless eaten before I came out of the cabin, and they did not join me. There was nothing further to attract my eyes, and I sank again into thought. How would this adventure finish? Would I see this invisible captain at length, and would he restore me to liberty? Could I regain it in spite of him? That would depend on circumstances. But if the terror kept thus far away from the shore, or if she travelled beneath the water, how could I escape from her? Unless we landed, and the machine became an automobile, must I not abandon all hope of escape? Moreover, why should I not admit it? To escape without having learned anything of the terror's secrets would not have contented me at all. Although I could not thus far flatter myself upon the success of my campaign, and though I had come within a hair-breadth of losing my life, and though the future promised far more of evil than of good, yet after all a step forward had been attained. 
To be sure, if I was never to be able to re-enter into communication with the world, if, like this master of the world who had voluntarily placed himself outside the law, I was now placed outside humanity, then the fact that I had reached the terror would have little value. The craft continued headed to the northeast, following the longer axis of Lake Erie. She was advancing at only half-speed, for, had she been doing her best, she must some hours before have reached the northeastern extremity of the lake. At this end Lake Erie has no other outlet than the Niagara River, by which it empties into Lake Ontario. Now this river is barred by the famous cataract some fifteen miles beyond the important city of Buffalo. Since the Terror had not retreated by the Detroit River, down which she had descended from the upper lakes, how was she to escape from these waters, unless indeed she crossed by land? The sun passed the meridian. The day was beautiful, warm but not unpleasantly so, thanks to the breeze made by our passage. The shores of the lake continued invisible on both the Canadian and the American side. Was the captain determined not to show himself? Had he some reason for remaining unknown? Such a precaution would indicate that he intended to set me at liberty in the evening, when the terror could approach the shore unseen. Toward two o'clock, however, I heard a slight noise. The central hatchway was raised. The man I had so impatiently awaited appeared on deck. I must admit he paid no more attention to me than his men had done. Going to the stern he took the helm. The man whom he had relieved, after a few words in a low tone, left the deck, descending by the forward hatchway. The captain, having scanned the horizon, consulted the compass and slightly altered our course. The speed of the terror increased. This man, so interesting both to me and to the world, must have been some years over fifty. He was of middle height, with powerful shoulders still very erect, a strong head, with thick hair rather grey than white, smooth-shaven cheeks, and a short crisp beard. His chest was broad, his jaw prominent, and he had that characteristic sign of tremendous energy, bushy eyebrows drawn sharply together. Assuredly he possessed a constitution of iron, splendid health, and warm red blood beneath his sunburned skin. Like his companions, the captain was dressed in sea-clothes covered by an oilskin coat, and with a woolen cap which could be pulled down to cover his head entirely when he so desired. Need I add that the captain of the terror was the other of the two men, who had watched my house in Long Street? Moreover, if I recognized him, he also must recognize me as Chief Inspector Strzok, to whom had been assigned the task of penetrating the Great Erie. I looked at him curiously. On his part, while he did not seek to avoid my eyes, he showed at least a singular indifference to the fact that he had a stranger on board. As I watched him, the idea came to me, a suggestion which I had not connected with the first view of him in Washington, that I had already seen this characteristic figure. Was it in one of the photographs held in the police department, or was it merely a picture in some shop window? but the remembrance was very vague. Perhaps I merely imagined it. Well, 
though his companions had not had the politeness to answer me, perhaps he would be more courteous. He spoke the same language as I, although I could not feel quite positive that he was of American birth. He might indeed have decided to pretend not to understand me, so as to avoid all discussion while he held me prisoner. In that case, what did he mean to do with me? Did he intend to dispose of me without further ceremony? Was he only waiting for night to throw me overboard? Did even the little which I knew of him make me a danger of which he must rid himself? But in that case he might better have left me at the end of his anchor-line. That would have saved him the necessity of drowning me over again. I turned. I walked to the stern. I stopped full in front of him. Then, at length, he fixed full upon me a glance that burned like a flame. "'Are you the captain?' I asked. He was silent. "'This boat, is it really the terror?' To this question also there was no response. Then I reached toward him. I would have taken hold of his arm. He repelled me without violence, but with a movement that suggested tremendous restrained power. Planting myself again before him, I demanded in a louder tone, "'What do you mean to do with me?' Words seemed almost ready to burst from his lips, which he compressed with visible irritation. As though to check his speech, he turned his head aside. His hand touched a regulator of some sort, and the machine rapidly increased its speed. Anger almost mastered me. I wanted to cry out, So be it, keep your silence. I know who you are, just as I know your machine, recognized at Madison, at Boston, at Lake Kirdall. Yes, it is you, who have rushed so recklessly over our roads, our seas, and our lakes. Your boat is the terror, and you, her commander, wrote that letter to the government. It is you who fancy you can fight the entire world, you who call yourself the master of the world. And how could he have denied it? I saw at that moment the famous initials inscribed upon the helm. Fortunately, I restrained myself, and, despairing of getting any response to my questions, I returned to my seat near the hatchway of my cabin. For long hours I patiently watched the horizon in the hope that land would soon appear. Yes, I sat waiting, for I was reduced to that, waiting. No doubt, before the day closed, the terror must reach the end of Lake Erie, since she continued her course steadily to the northeast. End of chapter.